So this is Luke uh, 16, verse 1. Uh, This is the word of the Lord because he loves us. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, Who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us in a book that we can study and that we can learn from and we can know concretely who you are and know what your will is. We ask that you give us your spirit to be our teacher, that you would apply this perfect word, this timeless word to our uh, individual lives, um, our individual circumstances. And so we need your spirit to come and apply it, to open our hearts, to convict us of our sin, and to give us faith that we might believe the good news of the gospel. We ask that your word would change us, and I pray that you would forgive my sins, for you know my sins are many, and that you would take your perfect word through this imperfect teacher and teach it to your people because you love them. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So... um, the passage that we're looking at today is, is a good example of why in this church we just go through books of the Bible one passage at a time. Uh, because if I was picking out what, you know, what am I going to preach on today, this passage wouldn't have jumped out at me. I think every time I've read this passage, I just kind of breezed through it and I didn't know what I was talking about and I went on to the next passage. And, uh, and you know, one of the reasons it's, it's a healthy thing to just go through the books of the Bible is that means as Christians we got to own up to difficult parts of Scripture, right? I mean, there's all kinds of passages that, that 
our culture would say are archaic or regressive or um, are just strange. They're offensive. They're hard to understand. And so we're not going to shy away from them. We just, uh, you know, here we have a passage where Jesus tells a parable. It's, it's about a rich guy who has someone working for him, and the guy working for him is going to get fired. So he says, ah, before I get fired, I'm going to use my boss's money to go make friends with people so that after I get fired, I can go crash on their couch after, and I'll have friends. And Jesus says, you know, you should, really, you should be more like this guy, uh, my disciple. You should learn from his example. And you say, oh, wow, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and uh, you know, many times when we're reading through the Bible, and we come to a passage like this, and we just skip over, actually, if we skipped over this one, next week is, is on hell, so we'd probably skip over that one, too. Uh, and, uh, but many times when we're doing that, you know, C.S. Lewis says that um, the, the troublesome facts you know, the, the, uh, the passages of Scripture um, that don't sit well with us. He says um, that those are precisely the ones that we must not ignore. The difficult passages are the ones that we must not ignore because those are the ones that are saying what we're not expecting. They're saying things that we're not already thinking, right? If we just go to the passages that just say the things we already think, we're never going to change, Right? And so we have to give the Bible permission to say things that might sound offensive, that might sound strange, or in this passage are just odd. And we've got to listen to it. And it's actually in those passages that we're going to grow the most. And so um, here is, is an example of a strange passage. And what Jesus, I think, is doing in this passage is he's basically torpedoing a mountain of a topic that shows up in every religion. It's called dualism. And dualism is, uh, is, is the tendency in all religions to separate everyday life from spiritual religious life. You know what I'm saying? Let me tell you what I mean. You know, many of you, many of you have jobs that you're really good at. You know, you go to work and, you know, people respect you. Um, you're a good leader. You have visionary. You're, you're, uh, you're dependable. And uh, you have all these skills uh, you know, maybe you're good at making money. Maybe you're very, very business savvy. You know how businesses work. And, uh, you know, maybe you're good with people. Maybe you're, you're charming. Maybe you're, you're good with your hands. You have skills. And there's this whole world of, like, most of our life where we're doing these things that we're very good at. And yet, for many of us, we'll have those, those skills. And yet, there's this underlying idea that really those are kind of worldly things. And the things that really matter, you know, is there's this whole other other world of spiritual things, of Bible reading and praying and going to church, and it's like this whole separate world, and, and they're separate. And, and the idea is that really uh, these things, the worldly things, are, are, they're kind of temporal. Um, they're going to go away, they, so they don't really matter. And even though we're spending most of our time, we're very skilled in that, we know that they're less important than the spiritual things, right? And you have these two worlds, they're kind of separated like that. And, you know, I, I had a, a friend in a seminary who told me that when he was in college, um, he was a part of a college ministry. And the college ministry would say, you know, it's, if you ever need to skip class if, if, to go do evangelism, if you're going to go tell people about Jesus, you know, you might as well skip class. Like literature, economics, uh, sciences, you know, that's, that's all worldly stuff. It's, and people's souls are eternal. So listen, skip the class and go do, ev- go do evangelism. That's the stuff that really matters. You see the separation? 
all of a sudden there's this assumption that these are two different worlds. There's the worldly, you know, studying literature and economics, and there's the spiritual world, and this one's better, so go do, go do that, right? Or, you know, I had another friend in college. He had a guitar, and he had the sticker on it. Maybe you've seen this. It will burn. This guitar, you know, is a reminder. You know, it's, it's a good idea. This guitar is not my God. Don't worship the guitar. That's a good idea. Don't, you know, worship God, not the guitar. But the idea is, listen, souls matter. Guitars don't matter. God doesn't care about guitars. It's going to burn, right? So don't spend your time. And what that is, is dualism. That there's this kind of sacred spiritual life on the one hand, and there's this secular worldly kind of life on the other hand. And the, the thing that really matters is the spiritual. They're separated. And uh, I think that what Jesus is doing, he's taking that whole concept, Jesus is taking a torpedo to, just destroying the whole concept of dualism and bringing the two worlds together. That's, I mean, that's the big thing um, of what the gospel is about, right? The gospel is about Jesus is God in heaven, heaven and earth, you know, it kind of feels like a dualism, right? And Jesus leaves heaven and comes into earth, into the physical everyday life. He's a carpenter. He does everyday things and knows real, real people. It's, it's the, the colliding of these two worlds, right? Is what the gospel is about. And so what Jesus does is he, in this passage, he takes kind of a cunning businessman, kind of street smart kind of guy and says, you know, my disciples, you need to learn from the street smart businessman guy who's got this kind of worldly smarts. You've you got things you, that you can learn from him. You, you see that there in uh, verse 8. The master commended the man for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And he's saying that shrewdness, kind of worldly wits and smarts, street smarts, is, is worldly people can use that for their ends. And, and God's people should be using the same things for God's ends, for what God is doing. He wants to bring the two worlds together. And so as we learn from Jesus kind of how to dismantle dualism, uh, I want to point out two things from this passage. Um, the first is God's kingdom uses our worldly gifts. God's kingdom uses the worldly gifts, worldly things we have, whether it's our worldly kind of skills, worldly wealth, status, position, whatever it is, God wants to use those things. And secondly, that God's kingdom is about far more than not sinning. Okay, I'm going to explain that, but I think that's a, that's a piece of it. God's kingdom is about more than not sinning, okay? So we're going to look at those two things. Let me just make one comment. I, I tagged a verse on at the end. You heard the verse about divorce or marriage. I'm not even going to talk about it. And I know it's a big verse, but it's this... It didn't fit with the next passage. It didn't fit with this one. And so I tagged it on. I'm talking about marriage in the beginning of June, like I said. So I'm going to, um, if you have a question about that verse, I, some of you might please come and talk to me. I'd love to um, talk it through with you. Also, if you have anything you want to talk to me about, questions about God, questions about the faith, I'd love to sit and have coffee with you and talk through it. I, I'd love to do that. So just come and talk to me. You're not I'm not so busy. Oh, I know you're busy. I, 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 have, I have time. I love it. That's what I want to do more than anything. So come and talk to me. So I, I'm not going to address that. You can come ask me if you have a question about it. So we're going to be talking about dualism and two things about dualism. So first, God's kingdom uses our worldly gifts. Um, now, our, the, our passage begins in verse 1 by saying, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, 
And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, the manager here in a Roman context would have been like a free man or a slave who basically had the authority to, do, to make any decisions he wanted with the rich man's money. So he could go out, he could make business deals, he could invest money, um, he could make uh, decisions of things to buy for the man's estate. And, uh, and so what this, having a position, a job like that, even if you were a slave, it, it increased your social status a tremendous amount, right? Because you're going around, you're meeting business people, you're building relationships. So actually a lot of people would sell themselves into slavery just to get a job like this manager has. So it makes sense why he uh, responds the way he does when he finds out he's going to lose his job um, there in uh, verse 2. And uh, he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my manager is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from the management, so when he loses his job, people may receive me into their houses. So what he does is while he's still working and he still has the authority over the, the, the rich man's money, he goes out and he says, listen, oh, you owe $100? Uh, just make it 50 and, you know, shake on it. Like, get me back later, right? And, uh, you know, oh, you owe, you owe 100 Give me 80 Okay, remember, we're on the same team. And, you know, after I get fired, I'm going to come crash on your couch, right? That's the, uh, that's, that's the plan that he's setting up. And what Jesus says in verse 8 is the master commended him for this, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Let me try to explain what this parable means. Um, Basically, Jesus is saying that God, that many of us, God has entrusted with a certain amount of uh, worldly kind of either power or status or wealth. You know, there's some of us... um, you know, we have varying different degrees of kind of worldly gifts. Some of us, are, some people are just good at making money. That anything they step into, they can just generate wealth. Um, they're successful in what they're doing. Some people are, some people are good looking. And, you know, if you're good looking in our culture, uh, people like you. You can get jobs easier. There's a certain amount of status and power that goes with wealth and with being good looking or being charming, you know, being charismatic. Um, being creative, being able to create things, being able to be entrepreneurial. There, there are all kinds of things that are, are kind of worldly power and status that God has entrusted to all of us and that people in the world, they will like you for those things. And God doesn't like you for those things. God is kind of impartial to rich people, you know, good-looking people. You know, it says here in, uh, in uh, verse 15, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so the things that we value are superficial, but we still value them. And they, they, they make a difference in the world, right? And so, um, so Jesus is saying is that like this money manager, this money manager, he was going to get fired. He was going to lose his status. So he's got a little time with this status, and he's going to do something with it, right? And so he goes out, and he makes friends. Basically, Jesus is saying, you know, the same thing's going to happen with you. If you're a rich person, you're going to die, and, you know, you've heard the old saying, you're not bringing it with you. You're not bringing your wealth with you. If you're, uh, if you're good at, at business, if you're good-looking, if you're charming, whatever, God is going to judge you when you stand before him for your heart. And we use all these worldly things to tell us how great we are, 
And God is going to judge you on, uh, do you love God with all your heart, soul, strength? You know, did you embrace Jesus? Do you say, I'm a sinner and I need the forgiveness of God to be reconciled with God? And do you love your neighbors yourself? That's, those are the things that God's looking for. And, uh, and God's not looking at, at our money and our status. And so at this point, you'd say, you know, okay, here, this sounds like dualism, right? There's kind of the world's, the things that matter to the world, the status, the wealth, the, um, the skills, doing, you know, business savvy. And then there's the spiritual things, loving God, praying, uh, going to church. Those are the things. It sounds like dualism, right? We, th- we think that's where Jesus is going. And then here comes the torpedo. Verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What is that? <laughs> um, Jesus is saying, on the one hand, God is not impressed with our, you know, worldly money, good looks. He, that's not what impresses him. But he doesn't mean he does, it, it's, it's unimportant. He wants us to use it. He wants us to use those things um, to build relationships. You know, if you ever read uh, the book of Acts, Acts 22, there's um, the Apostle Paul's in prison. He's getting beaten by the, uh, by the Romans. And Paul's goal in his mission is he wanted to get to Rome to preach the gospel. And, but he's in prison. So he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do? How am I going to get to Rome? So what he says, he says, you know what? You're not supposed to beat me because I'm a Roman citizen. I, he had worldly status. And he says, he used it. And they said, what, you're a Roman citizen? So that means he deserved a trial. And so he used his status to get to Rome to do God's mission that he was supposed to do. And, um, you know, sometimes Christians, they have status. They have, uh, maybe, you know, you make money. Maybe you make good money. Maybe uh, you, uh, you're good at making money. You have a nice house. And many times Christians are saying, gosh, there's, that's worldly stuff. And then the Bible, I thought, the Bible says I should be caring about spiritual things. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, don't feel guilty about having wealth. Use it. You have a nice place to live, invite people over. Share with people. Be generous. Right? That's what people, you know, have you ever met a generous person that you didn't like, that was generous, and they shared the things with you? People like generous. You have, you can build friends, you can build friendships with that. Jesus is saying you can even build be people's trust. You know, if you have money, take people out to out to eat. If you're good at um, making stuff, use your time to serve. You know, we're, we're t- talking about going out to the Lummy Reservation, July 9th. If you're good at using saws and you have saws, and you know, let's go out and cut some wood and you know, replace some shingles, whatever. I don't know what we're doing yet. But, you know, something like that. Use the skills and don't separate them. God is not impressed with those things. Those are not the things that, that win God's heart. But in particular, Jesus says, you know, don't just use your wealth. The, the wealthy, you know, in the world, people use their good looks, use their wealth, use their charm to build friendships with people who are cool. You know, they want to get popular and kind of get in the in crowd and stuff like that. And Jesus says, you should use these things to build relationships with whoever God puts in your path. And this is going to include, it includes the lonely, the alone, the marginalized, the poor, and uh, Actually, it's, it's interesting what he says here. This is, a, um, this is a, a verse I was wrestling with a lot this week. Verse 9. And I tell you, make friends with, uh, for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. They may, who's they are going to receive you into eternal dwellings? What's that talking about? Well, the next, <laughs> the next parable that comes right after this passage is the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. 
which is a story about there's this rich man, and he had this uh, poor guy named Lazarus who lived kind of at the front of his gate and was begging all the time. And, and so the rich man walked by him all the time. And this poor man had sores all over his body, couldn't do anything. And he just wanted some crumbs from the rich man's table. And Jesus says that um, every night the rich man was feasting sumptuously while the, Lazarus was starving outside. And so this, as the parable goes, they both die. And Lazarus goes to heaven to be comforted by next to Abraham, and uh, Lazarus is burning in hell, and Lazarus is crying out to, uh, or sorry, the rich man is crying out to Lazarus, you know, send me just a little drink of water, please, and Abraham says, no, you had your chance, you were walking past Lazarus all the time, and you ignored him, you should have made friends with him right then, (laughs) now's your chance, when you had the status, you had the power, you had the food, you should have made friends with him, and that's essentially what Jesus is saying, is that in, in, the light, in the age to come, the, the status roles are going to be reversed, right? You remember Jesus says that? Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who are going to have the status in the age to come. I, I don't know what that looks like, or what, but that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, now you have status right now. You have wealth. Use it to build those relationships. It's an urge to go care for the marginalized. And so what he's doing, what Jesus is doing is he's taking these two worlds, the spiritual life and the life of our physical means, our skills, our status, our power, our worldly stuff, and he wants to combine them and say, use these things for the work of the kingdom. And, and so on the one hand, that, for many of you, that looks like taking your spiritual life, your prayer, your prayer life, and bringing it into your, into your workplace, I'm beginning to think through, how do I live out the gospel in my workplace, in these relationships? And, and, you know, for many of us, that just means, you know, I don't swear at work and I, I don't lie and stuff like that. But what about your actual work, the actual work you're doing? Um, how can you use that to bless people, to give more advantages to people, more advantages in your workplace? Um, or the other way of not just bringing your spiritual life into your vocational life, but bringing your vocational life into your spiritual life. You know, here we are, we're an organization that's beginning as a church we have many things that we want to do to serve this community. And many of you have gifts, uh, ways that you can serve what we're trying to do. And so some of it will be like, how do I use my worldly gifts and bring them into God's work in the midst of this church? So thinking through those things, uh, Jesus wants to destroy this separation of my spiritual life, of praying and going to church as kind of this sub-compartment uh, of my life. And he wants to bring it into all of life. Now, the question, um, it might be, um, why does this separation happen in the first place? Why do we have a tendency to say, I have my work life, my family life, and then I have this other sub-life where I read the Bible and I talk about God, and it's, and it's kind of a separate compartment. It's, you know, it could be a one-day-a-week thing, or it could be, during my morning devotion, or, or uh, they, they feel very separate. Why does that happen? Well, um, that leads to our second point, that I think the kingdom of God is about more than not sinning. The kingdom of God is about more than not sinning. Now, uh, let me tell you what I mean. Um, let's pretend that the devil invented dualism, right? The, the, why, who invented dualism? separating these two things. Let's, if the devil did, it was a very brilliant move. Because what is he saying uh, to someone? And what is dualism saying to someone? It's saying, listen, you want to be a 
religious person, great. You should, you should do that. Be a religious person. But just remember, you know, there's the spiritual life and there's the worldly life. These two things are separate. So you've got to choose one or the other. You want to be a religious person or you're going to be a worldly person. Which one is it? Are you going to pray and read your Bible or are you going to go out in the world and you're going to have business savvy and you're going to be smart and you're going to be entrepreneurial? Which, uh, which one is it going to be? Choose one. And what that does is uh, basically um, says that uh, in everyday life, all the things that we're doing with our family and vocation, all the places where we're actually interacting with people, we're actually interacting with the world, we're going to have no power. We're going to be completely impotent in, in trying to make a difference in, uh, in this world. And so it separates them. And you see that in this passage. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will, de- uh, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so here you have a group of of Pharisees. The Pharisees were very uh, rigorous in their kind of keeping of this side, the spiritual side of the dualism. And a big part of that was they were living in a Roman culture where there was all kinds of dirty pagans everywhere, and they wanted to keep their distinction as a community away from the dirty pagans. So they wanted to make sure there were clear boundary markers between them, the spiritual religious people, and the rest of the world. And so they had all these kind of, whether it's worshiping at the temple or keeping the laws of the Torah or keeping uh, other Jewish laws, that each time was a reminder, we're not a part of the dirty pagan world. So essentially, it was an attempt to, to stay pure and to say, I'm uh, to not sin. I want to have a life where there's no sin in it. Now, have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried to say, I'm going to have a life with no sin? I'm going to stop sinning. If you do that, it's impossible. You're going to sin every day of your life. Every day of your life, you're going to sin. You're, and, and if you create the illusion that I'm going to, I'm, not going to sin, what you will do is you'll create a sub-area of your life where there is the illusion of no sin, where there's Bible reading, there's going to church, there's praying, and it looks like there's no life there. Uh, 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 it looks like there's no sin there, but it has to be separate from your, the rest of your life because you're sinning all the time in the rest of your life. So there has to be, you have to separate them out, right? And that's what the Pharisees are doing because, uh, you know, all these areas of, of work and family and in the Pharisees, in, in, in their case, of their money, God had no rule over their money. They had this life where they're doing all kinds of duties and they're trying not to sin. And by doing that, there was a whole area of their life that was full of sin that God had no, ha- no say over. And so there was a dualism that, happened, uh, um, that, uh, um, that leaves God only on the spiritual side. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a, a German theologian, pastor in the 30s, and also into World War II, he was executed by the Nazis, right? Just uh, in a concentration camp, just uh, two weeks before the Allies came and freed his concentration camp. And uh, Bonhoeffer has a really fascinating life. In the, in the 30s, he was a pretty young uh, pastor, theologian, and he, began, he was a leader in a movement called the Confessing Movement in Germany, which was a group of pastors who were standing against the Nazis. The Nazis had 
got into the German church and there were certain parts of German theology in the German church that was beginning to adopt a Nazi worldview. So, for example, there's the Aryan paragraph, which was uh, saying things like uh, uh, someone with Jewish descent or Jewish background can never be a, a, a pastor in the German church. And so there was this uh, isolating um, and in, incorporating of a Nazi worldview into the church. And so the confessing movement was standing against this. And so as Germany became increasingly a uh, police state, and many of these pastors who were standing against this, against this were being arrested, were being uh, interrogated and harassed. And uh, um, uh, Bonhoeffer, because of his life, you know, he had grown up with a pretty high social standing in Germany. His father was one of the leading psychiatrists in the, in the country at the University of Berlin. Yeah, a very well-known, uh, well-off family, and they had a lot of connections. And so he used those connections to uh, escape and he went to New York in 1939, just before the war, and he was going to take a post as a theologian at uh, Union Seminary in New York. And he was just there for three weeks. And he realized, you know, I can't, I can't stay in New York. My country is falling apart. I need to go back. Everyone was like, are you crazy? You're going to go, you're on the brink of war, and you're going to go, you have this great opportunity of, uh, of uh, you know, of a career in New York at this huge seminary, and you're going to go back to Germany. And this is actually, this is what he said in a letter uh, to one of the professors there. I've come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. So he says, I can't be a part of the Reconstruction if I don't suffer with them, so i got to go back. And he gets on the last steamboat going back to Germany. Uh, he takes and goes back to Germany. And uh, when he gets back, um, he did something that a lot of people didn't understand. Because he's a pacifist. And so he was going to be obligated to go to war and fight for the Germans, but that was against his conscience. And so because of his social standing and his status, he had an opportunity to get a post uh, with the military, German military intelligence, which was the uh, Abwehr. And uh, he went and worked for the Abwehr as a double agent. So he told them that he would be a spy, a pastor spy. And he told them, I'm pretending to be a spy, but I'm really working for you. But in truth, he was working for the conspiracy against, uh, to assassinate Hitler. And so he comes back, and he had told all these pastors, you know, you need to uh, fight, fight against the Nazis. And then he comes back, and he starts working, working for the Abwehr. And, uh, and everyone, it, it was tremendously lonely, because he was living this life of, a, it was this appearance of going to shows and uh, eating good food and socializing with these elites. But in reality, he was part of the conspiracy to, to assassinate Hitler. And one of the big problems that he faced was that not only could he not tell Christians what he was doing, but if he did, many Christians said, listen, be a spy, you're a Christian. You're not allowed to lie. You know, Christians can't lie. You can't tell everyone, and you can't murder the head of, a, of the state when you're, uh, um, when we're at war, you're going to murder the head of the state. You can't do that as a Christian. That, that'd be sinning. And and Bonhoeffer was like, are you mad? Sinning? That's all you're thinking about is I can't lie and we're murdering Jews and we're going to war and this is going to be the, the ruin of our whole nation and all you're thinking about, all the Christians were thinking about is I can't sin. 
is because they thought the kingdom of God was about not sinning, and that's not what the kingdom of God is about. And actually, in, in uh, Bonhoeffer's last book called Ethics, this is how it begins. Actually, it's printed for you in, in, on page three of your bulletin if you want to follow along. Um, those who wish even to focus on the problem of a Christian ethic are faced with an outrageous demand. For from the outset, they must give up, is inappropriate to the topic, the very two questions that led them to deal with the ethical problem. They need to, Christian needs to give up these two questions. How can I be good? And how can I do something good? He says, you need to give those up. Instead, they must ask the wholly other, completely different question, what is the will of God? And you see what was happening with those German Christians is they had these two lives. Their everyday life was they were a part of Nazi Germany, and their Christian life was about not sinning, and they'd been separated. And what Bonhoeffer says is, listen, you know what? You're going to sin all the time. And if you spend your life trying to live the illusion that I'm not a sinner and that I don't sin, you're going to create this little compartment of your life where you don't sin, and you're going to do nothing for God's kingdom in the world. You have to ask a radically different question. What is the will of God for my life? Wherever he's put me, in my work, in my family, in relationships, in my neighborhood, what is the will of God for me here? What is God doing? What am I a part of? And the reason we do that, you know why we're not caught up tiptoeing around about not sinning is because we're living in the age of grace. I mean, look at what, uh, look at what Jesus says here. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way in. The good news has come. Our sins are covered. And so we don't live our life tiptoeing around being like, oh, I don't want to sin. I don't want to screw up. I don't want to make a mistake. We throw ourselves into the world as God's agent. And listen, I'm not saying go and sin. If you sin, you should repent. But the, the main trajectory of your life is not trying to be good. The main trajectory is to say, what is the will of God for my life? And, we, and because this is the age of grace and God's, God has sprinkled his grace all over our life, all over our sins, everything we've done bad, we go into the world and we expect that God's working. That's what Bonhoeffer did. And he acted as an, he stood against his culture because the question he was asking was not how do I not sin, but how do I do the will of God? And when you do that, it takes these two worlds of dualism and it collides them together. And all of a sudden, your everyday life, every person you're talking to, every relationship, how you're raising your kids, all of it is a question is, what is the will of God for me in this situation? So may God give us the grace uh, to ask that question as a church. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you have brought us to be a part of your kingdom work. We pray that you would protect us from dualism, that we would not create a religious compartment of our life where we do religious things, but would all of our life and all of our skills and all of our gifts be used to do your will. And we pray that we would embrace the grace that uh, we don't have to be in fear of sinning because we know uh, that Jesus has covered our sin and that we will sin. And would we go beyond that question to the deeper question, what is your will for our lives? And may your spirit be at work in us so that we might answer it. And may we use all of our worldly gifts, our wealth, our skills, um, whatever it is, our status, our power, whatever, and use it for your kingdom. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.